Okay. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. Thank you for the opportunity to study your word and that we can do it out in the open and not have to be hiding. We ask you to bless and guide us as we look at your word, and we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 37, starting at verse 1. And it came to pass when King Hezekiah heard that he rent his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eli Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, and the elders of, of the priest covered with sackcloth unto Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. And they said unto him, Has, Thus saith Hezekiah, This day is the day of trouble, and of rebuke, and of blasphemy. For the children are come in come to, to the birth, and there is not strength to bring forth. It may be the Lord your God will hear the word of Rabshakeh, whom the king of Assyria, has, his master, has sent him to reproach the living God, and will reprove the words which the Lord your God has heard. Wherefore, lift up your, your prayer for the remnant that is left. So the servants of the king Hezekiah went to Isaiah, and Isaiah said unto them, Thus shall you say to your master, Thus saith the Lord, Be not afraid of the words that you have heard, wherewith the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Behold, I will send a blast upon him, and he shall hear the, a rumor and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the, by the sword in his own land. All right, so we want to go back a couple weeks ago. Remember that this... Uh, mouthpiece for the king of Assyria, Rashika, was blaspheming God at the gates, saying, who do you trust? And none of the other gods have ever delivered their people. Don't let Hezekiah lie to you that your God's going to be able to save you. And this is where we start chapter 37 at. Uh, Hezekiah hears it, and he tears his garments. And this is common when they're in great sadness. They just tear off their, their mantle. And he tears it off. And then he does what is correct. He goes to the temple. He goes to the temple to beseech God. And so he starts out very correct here. And then he says he sends Elikim, who was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priests covered with sackcloth unto Isaiah the prophet. So he sends a bunch of people. He stays in the temple. I'm hoping that he's praying. <laughs> But he's in the temple, probably praying, and he sends the leaders over to go get Isaiah. But I want to look at verse 3 primarily. And they said, and he, they said unto him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of trouble. And that, that idea of trouble here is rebuke, impeachment. Re rebuke and impeachment. God has been impeached. God has been rebuked. Uh, and of rebuke and of blasphemy. All right? You got somebody that's criticizing God and speaking evil of God. For the children are come to birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. Which is a proverb saying this so bad that we've got stillborn, stillborn child being born. All right? He's saying, this is so bad, nothing but death, nothing but evil can come, come of this. Hezekiah is rightfully terrified by the, by the world's view. He's looking out. He's surrounded by 185,000 soldiers. Nobody has been able to stop the king of Assyria from conquering them. He's out there threatening them. He spoke, remember, that his 
his man spoke in Hebrew in front of the people. They asked him, you know, please speak Assyrian. We know Assyrian. In other words, we don't want you to weaken the heart of our people. And he purposely starts yelling and even louder in Hebrew because he wants the people on the wall to hear. He wants them to lose heart because if they're terrified, they're afraid, they might surrender, they might hand over Hezekiah. They, you know, they're definitely not going to be ready to fight. And so they come to him and say, you know, hey, this is so bad, it's just like a woman who gives birth to a stillborn. You know, all the hope with having a baby is lost because of the stillborn birth. So it's a proverb out there. And then, interesting in verse 4, it says, And it may be the Lord your God will hear the words of Reshachah, whom the king of Assyria, his master, has sent to reproach the living God, and will reprove the words which the Lord your God has heard. I want you to notice that there, and he sent priests, and they're not willing to even say, the Lord our God, or the Lord my God. You know, they're going, uh, Isaiah, the Lord your God. And Hezekiah has been a good king. Hezekiah has been a really good king. He got rid of the high places. He destroyed the, he destroyed the altars to other gods. He destroyed the, most of the idols. And yet he comes down to it when it's time to beg Isaiah for help. It's not my God who's been insulted. It's Isaiah, your God. How many people do you know in families and friends who consider it your God? You know, sometimes they'll even come up. Would you pray to your God for, for healing? Would you pray to your God for help in my case? Yeah. And some of them even claim to be Christians when they will say those things. And this is where they're at. They're not even recognizing God as theirs. Now, this is not uncommon in the Old Testament. Most people did not recognize God as a personal God. Uh, it was very common to say that it's the prophet's God, it's the priest's God. Uh, but it was very hard for them to say, he is my God. When Jesus came along and taught the disciples, pray, our Father who art in heaven, that was very strange to them. It wasn't unheard of. We find places where they talk about God in that kind of a personal, but it was not the norm. The way we pray to a personal God is, was not the norm for the Jewish people to think, and still today isn't their normal way for the Jewish person to think. And many religions don't think that way. A personal God, a God that cares about you, a God that cares that much that you can call him father and friend, that they actually love you. And this is a problem. The Muslims have this problem. They don't, they don't have a loving God. They're hoping that they do enough God, uh, good things so their God doesn't judge them when they die. And they never know how much good is enough. And this is kind of the way the Jewish people thought. Well, you know, we've got a God. He's protected us. He's given, he's given the nation good things. But they don't usually bring it down to, I'm part of this nation. He's given me good things. But when you're dealing with this whole idea of trying to work your way and earn your way into God's presence, you can't look at him as your friend. He's just an angry person ready to strike you dead or or beat you up or whatever it might be and unfortunately there's a lot of Christians that have that kind of mentality. God is up there just waiting for me to stick my head up out of the ground and do something. He's going to crush me. And quite the opposite. When you do so, you stick your head out of the ground, God's almost right there saying, oh, let me help you out. I'm going to pull you out of this hole and, and we're going to walk down this way and I'm going to show you exactly what to do. And yet we fear to step out. 
well, what if God doesn't walk with me? I'm going to go out and I'm going to preach my first sermon. What if God's not there and I have to do it on my own? You know, I'm getting ready to teach my first class. What if God's not there? And somehow we just end up not trusting that God loves us enough to be right there. Until you do it a few times, you go, oh, wow, God is really good. And we need to really be doing it. And here we're seeing this whole idea. They don't trust it. This isn't, this isn't their God. You know, they go to the temple. They offer their sacrifices. They, think they're, they hope that their sacrifice was accepted by God, so they're covered for sins for another year. Until it's time to come back to the temple and offer another sacrifice on Yom Kippur to, to hopefully be covered for the next year. That was their mentality. God is really angry. If I do enough bad things in, be, in between sacrifices, I'm in trouble. And this is why they're going to Isaiah saying, hey, you're God. <laughs> you're God, not our God, not, 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 you know, not Israel's God. I mean, they're not even going that far. They're just saying, you're God. You know, and they, then they actually say, right, you know, this man has reproached the living God. All right? He's, he's said bad things about God. Reproach is literally something that people can do to you. Our job is to not get upset about it and let God deal with it. God will defend his name. He will defend his honor. And if you're one of his children walking in righteousness, he will defend your honor because you're one of his children. Now, if you're going out doing sinful things, he's not going to defend you at all because you deserve what you're getting. But, you know, so many times we look at it and say, well, God, you know, they're, they're really harming my testimony. Yeah, not the way to go. God, they're harming, harming your testimony. Go get them. Uh, but if you're worried about your testimony, forget it. You're looking at the wrong thing. And God's going to say, well, I'll just let them say all they want. If it's your testimony, I'll let them say whatever they want to say and do. And but he's looking for us to rely on him. And it says, and reprove the words which the Lord God has heard. Again, though, it's your, Lord, your God. Your God has heard these words. We know that he's heard this. We understand that he's omnipresent. He was there. He was hearing. But there's just not quite enough trust to say God is going to stand up and fight for them. And uh, then they say, therefore, lift up your prayer for, your, for the remnant that is left. Again, prayer was not a part of the Jewish people's lives in general. We, we see all kinds of prayers being said by different people. But in general, prayer is not part of their life. Prayer is not part of the Jewish person's life currently other than prayer times. And then they just say rep, rep, uh, repetitious prayers. Much like the average Catholic. They don't say a whole lot of prayers, but when they do, it's our Father or, or Hail Mary, full of grace. You know, they've got certain prayers. And to actually give a personal prayer to God, God, I need help. Help me in this situation because you need, you need your honor needs to be uh, shown not the prayer of the average person who's following God in religion and our, our good news is we have a relationship with him we talk to him all the time and our prayers can be really simple God I just need help God you, you see that person you hear what that person said God you know and just simple things and a matter of fact we as Christians are told don't use repetitive prayers this is one of the things I have with uh different churches that will pray the Lord's Prayer all the time. Now, there's nothing wrong with praying the Lord's Prayer, but if you look at it, the, the disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray, 
And he said, when you pray, pray like this. He didn't say pray this prayer. So we look at what is the components of it. And God says, that's what we should be praying. The components of the Lord's Prayer. You know, God, provide me my daily, my daily food. Forgive those who for, that have sinned against me as I forgive them. You know, uh, and all these things right down the list. Provide my daily needs. Jesus was teaching the prayer, so he's talking to the Father. So he's talking about God. When we have on top of our prayer guides, we have the word acts, adoration, confession, supplication, thanksgiving. Our first job is to give God adoration. Praise God, you're so wonderful, you've done so many good things. God, you are great, you are good, those type of, those kind of sentences are, are, are our request. And then we're to confess our sins. You know, we give him thanks. First we adore him, then we confess our sins, then we give him thanks for what he's already done, and then we come to him and say, this is what I'd like now. It should be the last part of our prayer. Usually, oftentimes, it's the only thing we pray. And then the, the servants of the king went to Isaiah. And it doesn't tell us that they ever said anything to Isaiah, which is not, a, not uncommon for the prophet to speak to them because God told them what to say. They may or may not have, but it starts out right, he, right here, verse 6. And Isaiah said to them, Thus shall you say to your, your master, Thus saith the Lord, be not afraid. <laughs> this is God's statement so often. Be not afraid. In this particular, of the words that you have heard, wherewith the servant of the king of Assyria has blasphemed me. Okay? He says, I heard those words. Don't be afraid of them. One of the hardest things for us to do as human beings is to follow this statement for God. Do not be afraid. And this is very important because do not be afraid is so often used in the scriptures. And God is really trying to teach us nothing on this world is what we're to be afraid of. Jesus said it this way, don't fear the one that can take your life, but fear him that can, can take your eternal life. In other words, the Father. Fear God. You know, the worst that anybody on this world can do is kill us. Then we stand before God, and if we're not right before him with the Jesus Christ sacrifice, then we go to hell. If we're, if we're clean and pure before him because of Jesus Christ's sacrifice and his accepting that, we go to heaven. So the worst that anything can happen on this world is we die. You know, uh, and actually, as I've said it, the worst that can happen to us is that we almost die. <laughs> okay? Uh, that I have to suffer a lot of pain because somebody almost kills me would be worse than dying. Dying would be a great thing. I no longer have to deal with this world. Paul said it to the, to the church, I'm torn betwixt the two, to, go, to die in home, which is better for me, or to stay here and keep teaching, which is better for you. And I understand that. As long as I've got somebody to help grow, I want to be here. When I can't help somebody grow, I want to be home. Just plain and simple. Just take me home, God. Yeah. If you're done with me down here, I want to go home because I don't want to have to deal with it. And you know, this is a great thing for us as Christians. In Psalms, God says, blessed is the death of his saints in his eyes. He looks at it and says, it's a great thing if you die because you get to come home. Now, he sees it from a totally different perspective than, than we do. 
Will we be sad when a Christian, fellow Christian dies? Probably, we're gonna miss them. But there should also be a joy. When my sister passed away, I told the pastor I cannot be sad because she went home. She was in a lot of pain with her cancer and she went home. I'm, I was not sad about her passing away. I'm gonna to get to see her again. And I, and I couldn't be sad. Now the rest of my family doesn't have that great hope and they were all tears and, and falling apart. And I go, okay, I understand where you're at. Some of you claim to be Christians, but you're not strong Christians. You're not really believing in eternity. And I believe in eternity completely. And so the greatest thing to do is guy and go home. And here they're told, fear not. Don't be afraid of the words. You know, matter of fact, they're only words. How often do we react to words? Now it's bad enough if somebody actually gets physical, but you know, most of the time our reactions are not against physical attacks. They're against what people say, not what they do more often than not. And here God's saying, don't be afraid of his words. Don't be afraid of what he says. I heard the blasphemy. And that blasphemy was against me, God said. And I can tell you, God does not put up with blasphemy. He does not put up with sin. We've said it over and over again. Sin has consequences, even for his children. Sin has consequences. And this one man is being very blasphemous, uh, saying, my king is greater than all you gods, and nobody can stop him. And God heard the words. Then the prophecy that he gives, he says, Behold, in seven, I will send a blast upon him. He shall hear a rumor, return to his land, and I will cause him to fall by the, by the sword in his own land. That's the prophecy. He's going to hear a rumor, and he's just going to, back, he's going to back away. If we get far enough in this chapter, that's exactly what happens. He hears some kind of rumor, and he goes back home, and his sons kill him in the temple as he's worshiping his God. Exactly what Isaiah said was going to happen. Uh, and a very quick, very quick fulfillment of that prophecy. Oftentimes you had to wait years to get the fulfillment, but that one was fulfilled very quickly. All right. Verse 8. So Reb Shakar returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Lib Libna, for he had heard that he was departed from Lachish. And he heard say concerning Tarhaka, the king of Ethiopia, he has come forth to make war with them. And when he heard it, he sent his messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Let not your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the king of Assyria has done to all the lands by destroying them utterly, and shall you be delivered. Have the gods of the nations delivered them, which my fathers have destroyed, as Go Gozan and Her Haran and Rezeph and the children of Eden, which were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Aphod, the king of the city of Shirarvaim and Hena and Iva? All right, so this man, Reshekal, goes back to the king and the king's not where he left him. <laughs> he's not in uh, Lachish anymore. He's, going out, he's gone out to fight uh, Libna, which is, uh, is, Leb is, an er is Le uh, the area of Lebanon. 
So he's pulled further west and north of where, where he started at. And why? Because he heard that the king of Tirkara of Ethiopia was coming. Now this isn't the ultimate rumor that he's going to hear, but this takes him away from Jerusalem. He pulls a large part of his army away from Jerusalem to fight this new threat. And it says, he has come forth to make war with you. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah. Okay, he's not letting Hezekiah off the hook. He's taken a bunch of his men away. And he doesn't want Hezekiah to think that, okay, you're, you're off the hook. He still has men surrounding Jerusalem. A large army still surrounding Jerusalem. And his words are just as, just as vile as they were in the previous chapter. Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, let not your God in whom you trust deceive you. Now this is kind of an interesting thing. The God you trust, don't let him deceive you. If you're trusting in God, he's not out to deceive you. And if he's out to deceive you, he's not worth following. <laughs> and so he's saying, you know, your God's not going to help you. He goes, Jerusalem shall not, saying Jerusalem shall not be taken into the hand of the Syria, which is exactly what Isaiah said. Isaiah has already said, the city's not going to be taken. And it says, Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands by destroying them utterly, you sh and shall you be delivered. He goes, you know the history. You know that all these other nations, some of them stronger than you, Hezekiah, have been destroyed. Why do you think you're going to be delivered? And quite a question. And you know, the funny thing is, when we're following God, so many times he puts us in situations that by sight look like there's absolutely no way out. Been there so many times it's not even funny. You walk into a situation so I'm like, oh, oh God, how, how are we going to get out of this? How are you going to make this work? And then a little while later he has the, the solution for you. Whether the enemy disappears or he walks you out or he changes the, changes the plan completely. When we watched God's Not Dead, A Light in the Darkness, we saw the, we saw the pastor fighting and fighting and fighting for what he, wanted. what he wanted. And God is going, you know, if you would just be quiet for a while, I'll show you what I want. We'll give you a whole new place. And if you remember, he got everything. He got a new place to start his church and got a place for his church to minister in the new building. That's the kind of stuff God does. You know, we do this all the t so often. God, what am I going to do? This great leader in the church has decided they're going to move on or their company's moving them or they died or whatever it might be. God, how are we going to replace that great big hole? And every single time I've watched, God has replaced them with at least one, if not two or three people. And usually two or three people and you get more accomplished. Somebody steps into what they were doing and does other things and, and you get more people serving God. It is amazing to watch God work if we just have faith and patience. Now that patience part is a hard thing sometimes, especially if we're walking by sight and not by faith. God, I just don't understand this. How are we going to replace this person? I don't, I don't know how this, I think this person's irreplaceable, God. And God says, no, I got it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna show you that they're not irreplaceable and I'm gonna show you how much better you're going to be because they're no longer there. That doesn't mean I want to see everybody who works in a church disappear all of a sudden. But if God, is, if God moves them on, they will be replaced and God will cover that hole. Even if he doesn't move them on, he will still cover the hole. Because it's his church, his people. 
Isaiah told him, God's going to take care of you. God heard this. God heard this, and he's going to tell him pretty much the same thing. Like when these guys come back to, to badmouth God, but now they've got a little hope. They just watched a bunch of the army walk away. You know, and they're thinking, Isaiah said that there was going to be a rumor. Isaiah said he was going to die in his own land. First part, the king's gone. <laughs> Took a bunch of the army. There's going to be great hope in their ranks because they're watching God start to move. And then he keeps going on. He says, have the gods of the other nations delivered them, which my fathers have destroyed, as Gizan and Hezan and Reseph and the children of Eden and Telesar. So he's going, hey, you know that we destroyed all these people. You know, they, you know uh, Hezekiah, they all had gods, and none of those gods delivered them. But remember, when he first spoke to them, he was telling them how Hezekiah wasn't worshiping God because he had destroyed all the other all the idols and, and uh, altars. This man did not understand that Hezekiah was purifying his nation for God. All he goes was, you know, Hezekiah, you know, look at look what Hezekiah did. He destroyed all your altars. He told you you had to worship here in Jerusalem. And so he still doesn't understand that there is a God. And this is the good news for us. There is a God, and we serve him, and he cares about us. And sometimes that's hard to understand. God cares about each and every one of his children personally. And that is amazing to think about. A lot of people and a lot that he also cares about. He holds the entire universe together. He controls the paths of every, every planet, every asteroid, every activity. He knows the number of hairs on our head. He knows the height of us. He knows everything about us, and he cares for every little detail about us. And you sometimes will think, God, why? Why do you care about me? Especially when we know ourselves. He knows, and he keeps it all straight. You know, but the problem for us is usually we don't really recognize that God is omnipresent, that he's om omnipotent. We know it. But how do we live our life? We usually live our life that he's not. No, God, you know, I think I'm going to get away with this sin because I don't know where you're at, but you're not seeing it. I, I'm doing it in the middle of the night when nobody sees me. Nobody else is around. Nobody knows I'm doing it except for you, God, and we don't think about God knowing it. We get into a tight spot. God, I don't know how you're going to, have, how you're going to make this work out. Well, you know what? If God really wanted to, he'd kill, kill them all instantly, which is what he's going to do to the 185,000 soldiers surrounding Jerusalem. Just strikes them dead in one night. God is so powerful that if he has to use the extreme of totally wiping out our enemy, he'll do that. Or he'll take and move them away to do something else. Or he'll do like George Mueller praying for breakfast. The milk wagon breaks down out front of the place and he has to, because he wants to empty his car, he gives them the milk. A baker down the street is baking extra loaves just because God said to and brings them to them. Now, there's an old joke about a, a woman who's praying all the time in her atheist landlord, and, and one day she's praying, God, I need food. So he goes and buys food for her, puts it on her steps, and she goes, oh, thank God for, for my food. He goes, I got you. I'm the one that provided. Oh, thank you, God, that you worked on the heart of your enemy, this atheist, to give me food. God can use our enemies to, to bless us. You know, do we have that kind of faith? Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. But you know, if we truly believe that God is good 
all the time, then we really can have trust in him. If we truly believe that he's omnipotent and can do whatever he wants, we have trust in him. When we truly believe he knows, he heard the words of our enemy. He heard the words they spoke that we don't even know about. When they're going, well, I'm going to see if they're going to follow God. I'm going to really make life miserable for them. And God knows that. God knows all of the things. He's all-powerful. He owns everything. You know, he owns it even if, even if the unbelievers think they own it. God owns it. He owns everything. He says, I own the, the cattle on a thousand hills. And by the way, he owns the hills. And all the grass that's growing on the hills. And all the stuff that's under the grass that, that on the hills. You know, he has no problem providing for his people. And if for some reason he ever ran out of stuff, he'd just create some more stuff if he needed to. Yeah, it's not a problem for God. And this is what I say, I think we're going to spend eternity getting to know who God is and getting to know God. And if somehow, you know, many, 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 many years from now, we somehow catch up and know everything there is to know about God, he'll just create more stuff to teach us. We'll never, we'll never know. But I'm just saying, if it was possible, he just creates some more stuff for us to learn about. Yeah. You learned, you learned all that stuff? Let me give you some more stuff to learn. Uh, we need to really start understanding God, and this is why I say it so many times. No matter how big we think God is, we're thinking too small. However strong we think God is, we're thinking too strong. Okay? Any aspect of God, how all-knowing he is, we don't even begin to comprehend how much he knows. Because we can just know the tiniest bits. We have infinite brains that can, even if you're really, really smart... Now, you're Einstein smart, one of the smartest people in the world. You still can only know God in the smallest amount of information because he is infinite. We cannot wrap our heads and minds around that idea. God is able to deliver. And the more we learn to trust him, the easier life gets. You can have a lot of peace when you're just going, God, I don't understand this, but I don't need to. You got it. I'm just trusting in you. I've learned learning that, learning it well, fairly well. I still fail, but I've learned it pretty good. Just, God, you're in charge. You, you've got it. God, I don't understand how you're going to make this work, but it's yours. There's a lot of peace when I don't have to worry about it. doesn't mean I don't do anything and just sit back and do nothing. It just means I don't worry about it. I do what I can do, and if it works, it works. If it doesn't work, God will, God will fix it. And this is, gives you a lot of peace. When you're not sitting there trying to defend your testimony, defend your life, defend, defend your honor, and you let God do it, he is an excellent defender. As a matter of fact, he does defending much better than I could, and sometimes he does it in ways that I would never even have prayed for. And I've seen this happen so many times. When God steps in, sometimes people's entire lives are turned upside down, and sometimes they lose their life. And I would never pray for somebody's life to be turned upside down. I had somebody that I really didn't like because of the way he treated me, but I did not want to see what happened to him. He got sick, his, his family, his wife divorced him, he lost his kids, he lost all of his business, lost all of his wealth and was destitute and was very sick. And he might probably be dead by now if he didn't repent. Is that what I wanted to see for him? No, I didn't want to see that. If that's what it takes for God to get his attention, then I'm all for it. And it had to have been, otherwise God wouldn't have done it. And I was out of, his, out of his work by then. I, I, was not, I was not being bothered by him anymore. But, you know, God will step in. 
and he will deal with our enemies. All we need to do is love them and pray for them. And then watch what God will do. And verse 13, he says, Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Aphod, the king of the city of Sephavim, Hena, and Iva? He's going, he's just reciting history to him. Same thing he recited to him in the first chapter. But at this point, Hezekiah is hearing it with different ears. Isaiah has prophesied, and he trusts Isaiah. Isaiah has prophesied he's going to hear a rumor, he's going to go home, and he's going to die at home. He has watched the army and the king or heard the reports of them marching off. He's still surrounded. His city is still surrounded. He's still under siege, but he's hearing the reports. The king of Assyria has marched off to battle. He's heard a, he's heard a rumor. First thing that Isaiah said, he's going to hear a rumor, and he's going to depart. So two parts of that three-part uh, curse on the king of Assyria have come, part, come uh, two of the th four parts have come true. Hezekiah is now hearing this with a whole different ear. Uh, yep, you're right. Historically, you win. Historically, you beat up the other gods, but I've got the living God, and half of the prophecies already come true. Half of the prophecy given to me is already true. Now, he's not saying it to the man, but this man has lost a lot of his influence because Hezekiah is hearing different words. And this is why it's important. What are we focused on when we're dealing with problems? Are we focused on the promises of God or are we focused on what we can see? This is why I tell you all, when I go into trials, I may initially fall in, in, into despair, but not for long usually because I come back to Romans 8.28 and say, for all things work together for good. Now, my answer to God, God, I sure don't know how you're going to make this work out to good, but you've said it's going to be for good, so I'm going to just trust in that. And I don't have to worry about the problems. Now, usually I do it fairly quickly. Sometimes it may take me a day or, or, or up to a week to do. Every once in a while I falter and fall and it takes a month or so to do. But I almost always will come back to, God, you've promised it's for good. And I think I've told you, I remember, I really associate this with the old poster I used to say, uh, that I saw, and it really had nothing to do with the verse, but it was a cat hanging onto a rope with a knot on it, and the phrase said, when all else fails, tie a knot, when you're at the end, when you're at the end of the rope, tie a knot on it and hang, and hang on. And that's, I picture that a lot. When I'm in trouble, that, that mind, that picture comes to my mind a lot. This dumb cat, hold, which I don't like cats, as you know, holding onto a rope that had a knot on it. Okay? But that really is what happens. When we get to the bottom of the rope and we have no hope, Tie a knot with God's promise and hold on to that promise for all that you have. Because that promise, whatever your promise is, mine is Romans 8.28. Whatever promise you have that says, I'm going to trust God in this situation, hold on to it. Because God has never let his people down. It has appeared that he has when, when, you, when people have gone to the, to the stake and been burned, when they went to the crosses as martyrs, when they were used for human tortures by Nero by being dumped dipped in a pitch and burned alive. It looked like God had failed them. All he did was take them home. And then their testimony has rang out through the centuries, the millennia. You know, God never lets his people down. You can count on him. He is good. He has a good plan. We may not understand it. We may end up losing our life. Uh, may even lose our life horribly. But you know what? 
I really believe that even when you're losing your life horribly, God is rescuing you at that point. Stephen stood up and looked up and says, Behold, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. I truly believe that Stephen felt nothing after that point. His eyes were fixed on Jesus, and it's like, I'm coming home. From the testimony, they felt no pain. They're burning, raising their arms up in worship and praising God. And many of them said, you don't have to tie me to this post. I will, I will wrap, it, wrap it up for the honor of dying for my Savior. That's things people didn't understand, and they literally would. They would be in the fire, not trying to escape. When the ropes burned, when the ropes burned and snapped, they would still stand there to, to die for their Savior because they considered it an honor to be found worthy of suffering for Christ. That is something we have to get in a mindset of. Now, our mindset usually is, God, I'm suffering. Get rid of this. All through scriptures, the disciples' attitude was, thank God I was worthy of suffering for Christ. The martyrs in Fox's Book of Martyrs had the same statement, thank God I was found worthy to suffer for Christ. We as American Christians especially better get this mindset in our mind that when bad things happen to us, thank you, God, that you found me worthy of suffering. Because right now we're not suffering that bad. But if we can't embrace it now, we're really going to have a hard time when, our, when we're put in prisons and we're tortured and we're killed. Suffering is not punishment. It's not punishment. It is, it is an opportunity for God to display his righteousness and, his, and we get to honor him. And we just need to be able to change the way we think. It means ignore the prosperity gospels. Ignore the idea that God is always out there to bless you. He's going to bless us. The blessings, though, aren't usually what we think they are. And we need to be able to say, thank you, God. Thank you for this opportunity to lift your name up through the suffering. And it blows the mind of non-Christians when you're having a bad day and you're just praising God. You know, it does. They look at you as if you're absolutely nuts. I have a guy at work, he does not understand why I'm happy most of the time when I come into work. Because he's miserable. He really is miserable. And he's even told me, you're too happy. You can't be happy like this all the time. He literally, he's beginning to understand it's not an act because it's been going on for three years. But he can't understand how somebody can be joyful even when everything is, is upside down and, and a problem. And not complaining like all the rest of them do. Do I slip every once in a while and complain about something? Of course, I'm human. But usually... It's okay. Let's see what God's got. Let's see what God's got in store for today. So each one of us that get a part of God, get all of God. You know, when He indwells us, we get all of God indwelling us because He is not diminished by being part of each of our lives and being part of us. Something we can't fathom, but you know, it is wonderful that we have all of God. We don't have a diminished God because I have a piece of him and you have a piece of him and everybody else has a piece of him. Because he's infinite, I still have all of God. All right, verse 14. And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of his messenger and read it. And Hezekiah went up into the house of the Lord and spread it before God. Hezekiah prayed unto the Lord, saying, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel that dwells between the cherubim, you are the God, even you alone, and of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ears, 
your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear all the words that Shennacherib, which hath sent to reproach the living God. Of a truth, Lord, the, kings of, the king of Assyria hath laid waste all the nations and their countries, and have cast down their gods into the, fi into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of man's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they have destroyed them. Now therefore, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, that all the nations of the earth may know that you are the Lord, even you alone. Now here's a good prayer. <laughs> you know, he is finally coming and saying, our God. So he gets this letter. He knows what Isaiah is saying. But he still takes it to the temple, spreads it out before God. Now, now you might say, okay, he's going to give a good prayer, but you might say, well, where was his faith? Isaiah already told him he's going to be saved, and he's going to be safe. He still has a little bit of fear. He still has a little bit of timidity, but his prayer finally is a lot better. It's a lot better prayer. And he goes to God, and he says, O Lord, God, uh, o Lord of hosts, God of Israel, good start. You're God of, God of the armies. You're, you're, the, you're the God of our, our entire nation. You know, and you dwell between the cherubim. And this was the attitude they had. God actually, they pictured God sitting on the th mercy seat between the wings of the cherubim. And that's where they always talked about him dwelling. Now, in, I, in, in reality, we know that he didn't exist. He didn't dwell there. Uh, even Solomon said, you know, God, we're building this house to you when he was dedicating the temple. God, we're building this house to you, but can a house even hold you? The one that the, the earth can't hold, the heavens can't hold, the heaven of heavens can't hold, and we think we're building a house for you to, to sit in and dwell in. But yet, over time, people had this idea of, God's right there, right between, the, right between the cherubim. Even though we can't see him behind that curtain, God, you are dwelling there. And they did lose the idea that God was everywhere. But before we get too hard on them, how many Christians think it's a very special place to go into the sanctuary of the church and meet God? I've got to go to church and I'm going to meet God there. Hopefully you're meeting God every day of your life. Before bed, at, you know, when you first get up, all day long, you are meeting God, praying with him, not thinking, well, God, you know, just can't wait to get to Sunday when I can go meet you. If that's our attitude, we need to get back to a new understanding of God. He's everywhere. He's indwelling in us. We take him everywhere we do and he gets to see and watch everything we do and gets to participate in everything that we do. Good and bad. Now he may, he may, he may withdraw his presence when we're doing bad things, but he's right there. We're not going to feel him other than the touch of the conscience saying, uh, what are you doing here? Why are you in this place? Why are you saying these things? But we take him wherever we go. And then he says, you are God, even you alone. Okay, in spite of what this guy is saying, God, you know, I know that you're God. And there is no other God. And you have made heaven and earth. His prayer is getting good. He's, he's adoring God. God, you're the God. You know, we're your people. You're our God. You, you, hear, you hear all these things. You're the, you're the king of all kingdoms. doesn't matter who's running these kingdoms. You're still in charge. And you made the heavens and earth. Then he starts giving us in, in treatment. Incline your ear. God, bend down and listen, and listen to me. 
You know, he's actually seeing a personal God at this point. God, just bend your ear. Just, you know, really he's asking just as, you know, like a child might come and say, you know, I want to tell you something. And they really want you to bend down and really listen to them and look at them. And here he's saying, God, just incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes and see, you know, see and hear the words of Sennacherib. And how he has sent a reproach to the living God. You know, God, I just want to remind you, you, you already told you, we already told you, Isaiah said it, but I just want to remind you, you know, he hasn't stopped reproaching you. Even though he's pulled some of his army away and he's gone away, he is still saying evil things about you. And he says, of a truth, Lord, the king of Assyria has killed all these other nations. He's reading God the letter. Yep, God, it is absolutely true. He's destroyed all these nations. Oh, and by the way, in the next verse, God, he's also destroyed all their idols. He goes, but what was the big deal? They're not, they, were just, they were just blocks of wood and gold. God, I know that they were just blocks of gold, and it is true that he's killed all the kings, he's, killed all these, uh, he's destroyed all these other gods. And, but he says, Now therefore, O Lord, our God, first time we've seen in this chapter, our God. Hezekiah seems to know God. He's trusted, his, he's had his faith renewed when, I, when Isaiah said, God's going to deliver you. Your, your city's not going to be conquered. The king is going to deliver, deliver. So this time it's not Isaiah's God. God, this is, I'm the king of your people. You're my God and you're our God. This, this is your nation. His prayer is totally different from the prayer that was being presented to Isaiah before. And this is where we need to be. God, you're not the God of my father. You're not the God of my mother. You're not the God of the pastor or the teach Sunday school teacher or my discipler. You are my God. And I put my trust in you completely. And this is true for kids. Kids have to learn this. They're, if you grow up in a home that's a Christian home, at some point the child has to make a decision. This is my God. I'm trusting my God. It's not the God of my mom or dad or even grandma or grandpa. God, you're my God. Now, in my family, I was the one that led it. I was 10 years old. I was the first one in my family to get saved. So I didn't have that problem. My brothers and sisters had this problem. At some point in their life, they had to decide, God, are you my God or dad's God? And mostly they chose that he was their dad's God. My kids all had to make that decision. Three of them have chosen that he's their God. One of them still struggling with, is he my God? All of them were raised the same way. And here Isaiah, uh, Hezekiah is coming. God, you're our God. He's finally coming around. He's now recognizing, I'm God of, I'm God of Israel. Uh, I'm king of Israel. And, God, and the God of Israel is our God. He loves us. He's living. He's not going to be defeated by this, this man just because the other gods were defeated. And a matter of fact, Isaiah told me he's not going to defeat us, so I'm going to hold faithfully to that statement. And it says, therefore, the Lord our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth might know that you are the Lord, even you alone. This is a refrain that goes through the scriptures that many great leaders have said, God, please move so that others will see that you are God. All right? David goes into battle with Goliath and he says, this day they will know that there is a God in heaven. 
Here he says, God moves so that this day the nations will see you're the deliverer. We couldn't do it. We're stuck in our city. God, you move, you deliver us, and everybody will know that it was you who delivered us. This is important for us to understand. Most of the time, God is going to put us in a situation where it will be very clear that it was him who delivered us, not ourselves. And he'll put us in a place that there was no way we could get out of and say, all right, and we can pray this prayer. God, I really need you to do something because I want the world to know, at least my world, <laughs> to know that you are God, that you delivered out of this situation. So when we're in the midst of the worst thing that we can possibly imagine, we see no way out. Our prayer is simple. God, you're good. You work all things together for good. And God, I am looking forward to see how your name is lifted up by your deliverance out of this situation. And he will deliver so that his name is lifted up. Even if it's deliverance by death. And Fox's Book of Martyrs is a great book because people were worshiping God, singing praises to God as they're dying. Singing praises as they were being killed. The Coptic Christians in Egypt back about, I guess, eight, ten years ago now, were praying and praising God as their heads were being chopped off. And people got to see true worshipers of God facing death with no fear. What can God do? Oh, it's an amazing things that he can do sometimes when we watch and say, wow, God. And it's great for us. It builds our faith when we go, wow, God, I never thought this would happen. How, how did you do that? Sometimes it's like, how did you do that, God? You know, well, what did you do, God, as, you're, as we're out of the trouble all of a sudden? I, Psalm 23, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You know, because he's our comforter. If it's, even if it's real death, it's still a shadow because we're going to enter into the true life afterwards. And this is a thing we've got to understand. This world is a shadow. We put all our hopes and, and, and energy into this world. This world is nothing but the shadows. When we get to heaven, we're going to see things that, we're, that are just going to boggle our mind, even with the new spiritual mind. It is going to be mind-boggling. Wow, God, I've never seen the color red, green, blue, purple, and whatever other colors he gives us until I saw heaven. God, I never tasted fruit that tasted like this. I never tasted grapes that tasted like this. I never tasted water that tasted like this. You know, one of, the, one of the lines in the encounter is they drink the water and said, wow, this is the best water I have. And the guy that plays Jesus says, yeah, it's my own, my own recipe. You know, made, made it up fresh just for you. Uh, but you know are we willing to trust God and say God you're in charge God I'm willing to take whatever you send my way because you are good and this is something that we need to understand you know there's a phrase that gets said a lot in, in a lot of churches God is good all the time and the people reply and all the time God is good it's more than just a phrase it really is true and we need to be saying that to ourselves all the time. God is good all the time. All the time. When it looks like he's not being good, he's still being good. When it looks like he's lost his mind and lost his marbles, he's still being good and he's, he's in control. When I can't understand what he's doing, he's still in control. 
And the more that we can condition our minds and our thoughts to understand that, the better off we're going to be. God is always in control. He always has a plan. He only lets so much bad things happen to us, and he is in control of what bad things happen to us. And we need to really, truly believe and understand that Satan is on a leash. Satan can only go so far, and he hits the end of the leash. It's kind of like if you walk by a dog who's a real vicious dog who's on a leash. If you know where that leash ends, you don't care what that dog does. How bad that dog's barking, how bad that dog is snarling and snapping at you. He's at the end of the leash. He's not coming at you. Satan has a tether. As long as you don't go inside that leashed area, you're fine. If you go inside the leashed area, God knew you were going to do it and you're still fine. <laughs> he still has a plan. You just violated the, the plan and made things a little more difficult on yourself and there'll be consequences for it. But if you stay outside of that leashed area, he can bark and growl and, and roar at you all he wants, but he's not going to get you. And if he can, God's allowed it. And you just say, okay, God, I'm ready to, ready to see what you've got. And I understand it's hard. It's hard sometimes when you're in that place and saying, all right, God, don't understand this. But this is why I say over and over, grab on to the truth. If bad things are happening to you, number one, they're perceived bad things. Because God is looking at them totally different than we are. And we've used the picture of the, the uh, carpet or the embroidering on the back side of it. It looks ugly. When we get to heaven and we look at it from the other side, we're going, oh, that's why I went through that. That's what you were doing. Oh, okay, now I understand. Look at the beautiful picture you made out of my life. And then your picture is woven into other, other areas and how your life interweaves with other people's lives. Because sometimes our trials are not necessarily for our good. They could very easily be trials to help others. And Fox's Book of Martyrs is another one of those great examples. Those people suffered not for their sake. They went to heaven. But for our sake, they go, yeah, look what God did in that person's life. Wow, they were very faithful. God, can you make me that faithful? God, I'd like to be that faithful. Help me. And be ready for the trials that will come to get you that faithful. All right? All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for your love, your care for us. Lord, we thank you that you are always in control, that you are always good, and that you have a plan. Help us to always remember those truths as we walk through this life, that you are good, you've got a plan, and it is always going to be for good. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.